Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming to this LSE Public Works event. My name is Christian Coates and I'm a research fellow in the Department of Government and a member of the Middle East Centre Research Group. This lecture is part of the LSE Works series intended to showcase the latest research by LSE's research centres. The series is designed to allow LSE academics to present key research findings, demonstrating where appropriate the implications of their studies for public policy, consistent with the LSE motto, to know the causes of things. This evening, it's a pleasure and a privilege to introduce two colleagues from Middle East Centre to debate the new Middle East, protest and revolution in the Arab world. Professor Fawaz Gurgaz is a professor of Middle Eastern politics and international relations here at the LSE and director of the Middle East Centre. On the 10th anniversary of 9-11, Oxford University Press released his new book, The Rise and Fall of Al-Qaeda, and his latest book, published by Palgrave Macmillan, is Obama and the Middle East, The End of America's Moment? Question mark, I think. Gurgis <laughs> <laughs> has previously taught at Oxford, Harvard, and Columbia Universities, and was a research fellow at Princeton for two years. He held the Christian A. Johnson Endeavor Foundation Chair in Middle Eastern Studies and International Affairs at Sarah Lawrence College before joining the LSE. Professor Charles Chip is a professor of politics with reference to the Middle East at the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS. His main areas of research include the study of state and society in the Middle East, especially Iraq, and also Islamic political thought. He is the author of Iraq, A History of Iraq, now in its third edition, Islam and the Moral Economy, The Challenge of Capitalism, and co-author with Shahram Chubin of Iran-Saudi Arabia Relations and Regional Order. The scheme of the event tonight is that Fawaz will speak for half an hour and Charles will then respond for 20 minutes to leave plenty of time for Q&A at the end. Before handing over to Fawaz, I would also like to say that the event of the, tonight's event and the title of the lecture is also the title of a forthcoming edited volume put together by Fawaz, The New Middle East Protest and Revolution in the Arab World will be published later this year by Cambridge University Press. The book will mark the first major publication of the Middle East Centre and offer one of the first critically comprehensive books written by leading scholars of and from the region. It will examine the meaning and effects of the Arab uprisings on local, regional and international politics. Different sections will focus on the context and causes of the uprisings of 2011, its thematic and comparative aspects, case studies of specific countries in turmoil and their international implications. The book is edited by Fawaz and has a distinguished lineup of contributors, including Charles Tripp himself, Roger Owen, Madawi Al-Rashid, Bill Quant, Sami Zubeda, Avi Shleim, and many others. It will be published later this year. Fawaz. Thanks. Thank you. It's, uh uh, we're delighted to have all of you here. Uh, just a few words about the format uh, of tonight's uh, uh, presentations. Uh, Christian mentioned that uh, this is really part of a uh, prolonged project on the part of the Middle Eastern Center. The Middle Eastern Center came into being about two years ago. 
And in the last, in the, in, in the last two years, we have held about uh, 25 seminars uh, on the uh, large-scale popular uprisings in the Arab world and beyond the Arab uprisings by leading scholars from the Middle East, uh, from the UK and Europe and uh, North America. Um, and really, uh, uh, I mean, very extensive and very substantive uh, lectures. Uh, just this week, uh, we had Fawaz Tarabulusi, who spent a week with us talking about basically the challenges and the difficulties <laughs> facing uh, some of the Arab countries that witnessed uh, the large popular uprisings. And last year, we also held a conference at the LSC, uh, organized by the Middle Eastern Center. We brought scholars from uh, the Middle East and Europe and North America, and as Christian mentioned, uh, colleagues and teachers, including uh, one called Michigan, Roger Owen of Harvard, uh, William Quant, uh, Virginia, Mahmoud Ayoub of uh, Michigan, uh, Charles Tripp, um, and uh, Avi Schlein, and of course Christian and John Chalcraft, the LSE, and John Seidel, uh, and many others. Uh, and I think when the school asked us to have the seminar, my first instinct was let's have a panel. <laughs> Let's have a panel by the same scholars who basically, including uh, John Shellcraft and John Seidel and Christian and Charles Tripp, uh, we were told, no, you can't do that. One internal, one external, and a chair. So really, it's unfair to my colleagues who have done most of the research. So I'm here in a very humble way. Um, everything I say is really a synthesis of the last two years' seminars that we have held uh, at the LSE. And the credit goes to many colleagues uh, uh, here, uh, near and, and far. Uh, so what I will do today, I have about 35 minutes or 30 minutes, is to give you really a glance or a glimpse of the big substantive points and findings of our research projects in the last two years. And remember, I will be distorting a great deal because I, my time is very limited. And I would be delighted to try to answer any questions you have during the question and answer sessions, and hopefully Charles will have his own contribution and, and take what, what I say and, and goes beyond what, what I say tonight. I think if there is one particular point I want, to, I want you to take home tonight, one point, is that uh, it is highly critical to distinguish between the causes and the drivers of the large-scale popular uprisings that have taken place in the Arab world and since 2011 and the potential outcomes of these uprisings. It's the causes and the drivers and the potential outcomes are two different things, two different dynamics, two different patterns. What worries me sometimes is that if you read the media on a daily basis, there's a great deal of confusion about what happened and the potential uh, outcomes of these uh, great historical uh, developments in the region. Uh, <clears throat> the first challenge I will argue, and that's what we have tried to do here in the last two years, is to understand the drivers, the causes, both the socioeconomic and political drivers that triggered uh, the uh, sweeping uprisings uh, in five or six uh, countries. Because once we understand, I would argue, the causes and the drivers, we can understand basically we can have a better understanding of what 
might lie ahead for the regions, for the various uh, countries. So, of course, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I'll come back to, to what I mean by the outcome versus the causes of the uprising. The next task, I would argue, is that uh, to make sense of the fierce social and political struggles taking place today in Tunis, in Egypt, in Yemen, in Libya, in Bahrain, uh, in Jordan, uh, in Syria. Uh, that is, if we go beyond the headlines, the news headlines, the gloom and doom about the end of the Arab uprisings, has the Arab Spring come to an end? Now is the favorite term, even some political scientists. As somehow we can measure what has happened in the Arab world in one or two years or three or five or six years. And it tells you a great deal how we simplify, all of us, myself included. Uh, I would argue that far from over, what we have witnessed is a revolutionary moment, and I'm, I'm not saying anything original, a revolutionary moment that's still unfolding before our eyes in almost every single country in the Middle East. And revolutionary moments are different from revolutions per se. That is, uh, uh, they evolve, they progress, of course they might mutate, uh, uh, as in many cases uh, throughout uh, history. Uh, that is what I'm trying to say is that what we have are open-ended struggles uh, uh, that will play out in the coming years in almost every single country, including the, the biggest and the most populous Arab country, uh, that's uh, Egypt. And what, what we are witnessing, again, is what I call the birth banks, the uh, uh, transitions from authoritarian regimes, you might call it to pluralism, to democracy, depending on... I think democracy is the ultimate stage, different phases to pluralism and then uh, democracy. Um, um, uh, and in this particular sense, we need to keep, I mean, when, when, when we see and what we hear, what's happening, it's, it's nothing really exceptional, nothing really unique, what's happening in Egypt and Tunisia. And I'll say why we should not be surprised by the fierce social and political struggles taking place in almost every uh, single uh, country in the region. Uh, that is, uh, 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 what you have now is that if you compare what, what, what's happening in the Arab world, I mean, think of what happened in southern Europe in the 1970s. Think of what has happened, what happened in Latin America and parts of Asia in the 1980s and Eastern Europe and other parts of Asia and Africa in the 1990s and 2000. Uh, that is, the social and political struggles unfolding uh, in almost every single country, in, in Tunisia and in Egypt and Yemen, uh, are natural, are to be expected, uh, because what we have here is you have to institutionalize diversity. Even though you might say, look at this, the great scenes in the first phase of the revolutions. Of course, you had coalition, uh, rainbow coalitions, uh, different age group in terms of class, what have you. But now, I think... Uh, what we are seeing now is that you have the institutionalization process. You have the lack of trust. I mean, people, you know very well what the authoritarian regimes did for almost 50 years, trying to deepen the mistrust in societies, trying to basically deepen and widen the divide. And I think most of the forces in the region now are discovering one another. I mean, one of the really fascinating things for me, for a person like me, I do a lot of research, is that I used to go and interview people in Egypt and, and, and other places and the same people, whether you're talking about left or, or center or Islamist, they never talk to each other. Literally, 
I mean, there, there was no conversation uh, between and among the various political groups. And now what you have is you have an open political process, you have the lack of trust, uh, and that's what we're seeing in, in that part of the world. It's going to take some time to institutionalize diversity uh, um, in these uh, countries. Uh, and in this particular sense, what we are witnessing is street politics, contentious politics, uh, what have you, I think, part and parcel of the process of institutionalization and normalization. Uh, uh, how long will it take? Of course, no one, uh, we, we hardly know how long will it take because um, I think we can speculate whether it's going to be 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. My take, and this is born of a, a just speculation, this is going to be a very prolonged and very uh, uh, difficult uh, process, given the extent of socioeconomic problems and sociological problems. I'm going to say a few words why the process itself will prove to be probably rocky and difficult uh, and complex. <clears throat> uh, and I think also we, 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 we need not be surprised by the so-called inter-ethnic and inter-religious turmoil, given the, the fact that some of the authoritarian regimes used and abused tribal, regional, and ethnic tensions in order to consolidate their rule over many years, whether you're talking about whether in Iraq or in Libya or in Syria uh, or in other uh, places as well. The big point uh, to highlight, and, and this is the part of the, the, the point I would like you to take home, is that uh, there will be no closure uh, um, in the foreseeable future to the revolutionary moment uh, that has shaken the political foundation of the Middle East to its very core. Uh, that this is a process that will be with us for quite uh, a long time. Another finding, one of the major findings that, and again, this is part of the project itself, is that uh, I would also urge you to, uh, um, I mean, and as many scholars, to move away from what we call a binary model of politics in the Middle East uh, now. I mean, think of how much you've heard about the so-called Republican versus monarchist model. The Republicans are going to go, and the monarchies will stay. This is now the new uh, uh, fad in political science. As somehow, we, the, the process itself has come to a closure. That's the end of it. Uh, um, and also the whole idea of binary politics of strong states, weak states, uh, and what have you. I think uh, it's essential to understand, of course, the underlying causes and drivers, uh, because I think it will give us a kind of a perspective, context, of why some uprisings have taken place in some countries and why the fusion has not basically uh, uh, taken place in other countries, whether you're talking about Lebanon or Saudi Arabia or Algeria. We can talk about why Saudi Arabia has not really undergone a similar process of revolutionary uh, change, and whether they are immune. If our reading is correct, if we are at the beginning as opposed to the end of the process, I think we need to talk about, we need to be very skeptical about the whole binary notion of uh, uh, politics, monarchies versus uh, republic. My point, my big point, is that these binary models uh, are basically mostly normative models. They are more based on wishful thinking. Uh, uh, yes, Saudi Arabia has survived, but the question is, if you, if you uh, uh, delve deeper 
into the structure of Saudi society in terms of poverty, in terms of expectations, in terms of the uh, rising and new middle class, uh, probably uh, want to be a bit, a bit skeptical uh, uh, about what will happen in Saudi Arabia in the next uh, few years. This brings me to the heart of the matter, that is the underlying causes and drivers of the popular uprisings. And I, again, probably you won't be surprised by some of the uh, findings that <coughs> most of our scholars uh, have reached. I think, again, uh, there is no single cause here. There is no uh, thing that you can say that was it. Uh, that was the spark that triggered the uh, Arab uprisings. Um, some of us political scientists, we stress political variables. Economists talk about economic vulnerabilities. Uh, I mean, I think, think of how, again, we, we have had the debate here at the LSE uh, in the last uh, uh, two years. But I think if we focus on other political variables or economic vulnerabilities, I would argue this would give us a sketch of a highly complex landscape. And I, I want to go now, I want to spend really the bulk of my presentation talking about the fact that if we focus on the rallying cries of the popular uprisings in almost every single country, I mean, what were they, they in, in almost every single country? Uh, we're talking about al-Hurriya, we're talking about al-Aish, and we're talking about al-Adal al-Ijtima'iyya. Al-Hurriya uh, is freedom, al-Aish is bread, and al-Adal al-Ijtima'iyya is social justice. And I think, again, these, I mean, these rallying cries tell us a great deal, help to explain that what we're talking about really is socioeconomic and sociopolitical grievances and aspirations that uh, uh, triggered the large-scale popular uprisings in almost every uh, single country. And here I would argue, too, that despite important differences, despite important specificities, uh, that is... Uh, what we have here is that a unifying thread, a unifying thread, uh, runs through all of the cases. Uh, and if I may simplify and say that what we're talking about is a call for dignity, uh, we're talking about empowerment, we're talking about political citizenship, and we're talking about the fact most of the people, many of the people, many of the protesters wanted to seize the state back from the presidents for life and their families and their cronies that turn the states into family-based states. And this really explains uh, 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 why uh, uh, this particular convergence of socioeconomic and sociopolitical variables uh, lie at the heart of what we have witnessed. Uh, I mean, think of, and here I, I don't have the time to really go uh, in depth into some of the uh, statistics that we have. Um, I mean, I, you'll see in, in terms of PowerPoints uh, what I mean by uh, socioeconomic grievances and socioeconomic uh, vulnerabilities. <coughs> uh, on, average, on average, we estimate that you have between 50 and 40 percent of the non-oil producing countries live either in poverty or below the poverty line, either on $2 or less than $2 a day. This was one of the leading uh, uh, economic articles in the book uh, uh, by economist Ali Qadri, uh, based not just on World Bank 
on IMF, but based on informal statistics in many countries, he estimates it's 50%, not 40%, who live either in poverty or below the poverty line. And they spend, out of the, they spend almost more than half of the $2 on basic foods and necessities. So it tells you a great deal about, uh, I mean, the extent of the socioeconomic uh, crisis. Uh, of course, you might think, I mean, some of you students think of, you have probably the notion of wealthy Arabs. There are many wealthy Arabs. Uh, but the reality is uh, 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 most of the working Last people in the Arab world are poor, in particular in the last 20 or 30 years. On average, you have the pauperization, not just of the, the poor, but even of the uh, middle class. That is, the majority of working Arabs are poor. Uh, again, I, I don't have the time to go into statistics, that the Arab world exhibits the highest income inequality of all regions in the world, the highest uh, uh, in the world, and is one of the lowest and poorest uh, quality per capita growth rates of all regions in the last three decades. Uh, the Arab world is also has the world records in terms of unemployment among the youth, in particular educated youth. The, the statistics are staggering. In some parts of the Arab world, we're talking about between 40 and 50 percent of educated young Arabs are unemployed. And this tells you a great deal why what we say the youth, is the youth revolution, the youth played a key role, in particular educated youth uh, uh, in the Arab world. Uh, and again, I don't have the time to go into uh, the whole idea about the Washington consensus and the new liberal economic policies, but I think across the board, most of the scholars that we brought here, economists, sociologists, seems to agree that the new liberal economic policies of the last three or four decades have really pauperized the Arab world. That was the, the consensus. We can, we can argue whether it's, 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 you accept this notion or not. Uh, uh, in this particular sense, also, what, what you need to take it into account that on average, you have 60% of the population of Arab countries are uh, below the ages of 30 years old. Uh, so you have a huge... Uh, a chunk, a huge army uh, of young men and women. Uh, some of them are educated and, and, and employed, and this tells you a great deal uh, about uh, why socioeconomic grievances and why the youth in the Arab world uh, played a key role. It's not just, and, and this is, I want to come back, because you might ask the question, why now? You know, poverty has existed in the region for a, a, a great deal. Uh, and this, again, uh, some of the findings, I think, uh, what we have discovered is what we call the agrarian roots of the uprisings. I think it's the first time, really, the, what the, 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 the spark and the convergence of the urban and the agrarian poor, uh, poor played a key, a key role in the huge crowds, in the really multitudes that brought about uh, uh, the Arab uprisings of 2011 and 2012. Uh, uh, Again, I don't have time to go into statistics about what we call the agrarian roots of, of, uh, of the uprisings. I mean, again, I, I don't need to tell you that uh, the poverty in particular in the countryside, in the, the agricultural uh, provinces and, and in the Arab world, again, are, are staggering. Uh, in Egypt, 40 percent 
of uh, the agricultural areas, what we call agrarian, uh, live in poverty. Uh, can I have my glasses, please? <coughs> Thank you. Uh, in Egypt, more than 40% of the agrarian population live in poverty. Uh, 62% of poor people in Syria live in agrarian areas. 77% of whom are landless uh, in Syria itself. And again, I'm going to come back to Syria where it all started in Dara, uh, and then there is Zur and Idlib and other places, these <coughs> agricultural areas. It's not just the drought that basically, uh, I mean, rocked uh, Syria since 2005. It's also the neoliberal policies of Bashar al-Assad, which basically popularized the agricultural area. And no wonder why, I mean, if in many ways, what's happening in Syria, I don't need to tell you, of course, multiple conflicts uh, collapsed into one. You have the country versus the city, and of course you have, in terms of socioeconomic divisions, but the, the, the agrarian problem really lies at the heart even in Tunis, we know where, where it all started. In Egypt, too, you're talking about Suez and Alexandria and other places uh, uh, that uh, explain, uh, I mean, the, the uh, important role of the agrarian uh, role uh, uh, in the Arab uprisings. Uh, Again, in terms of world records, it, it, it's, it's very tragic when we talk about uh, that the Arab world uh, hold probably uh, multiple world records in terms of all negative, of course. Uh, the Arab countries are the most food insecure in the world and also suffer from the highest land inequality in the world. Uh, of course, and that's a very structural crisis that explains a great deal why the agrarian roots of the uprisings uh, are very uh, important. Uh, for example, and, and most of you know this, Egypt is the largest grain importer in the world, while Yemen imports 90% of its wheat, uh, its most important stable food, both in, in Yemen and in Egypt. And the word Aish in Arabic, of course, does not just mean bread. It means more than that. It means life. Uh, and when you have a country where, I mean, 90%, uh, I mean, think of, uh, of how uh, any kind of increase in food prices uh, and that's exactly what happened, the, the rise in food energy prices in the, at, the, at the end of 2010 had devastating effects on the poor. Uh, of course, in December 2010, food prices rose to their highest levels, uh, I mean, records, uh, uh, world records, uh, since uh, be it began in 1990. Uh, and again, if you look at the statistic, again, this is... We're trying to understand this particular phenomenon, uh, but most of the we, we, we commissioned a few papers uh, on Egypt in particular, uh, and the evidence shows that in Egypt, the uh, uh, country, the people from the country and urban poor came in full force in Cairo, uh, in Alexandria, in Suez, and other towns, uh, surprising and overwhelming the security forces. I mean, in Egypt and other places, Remember, the fear, in particular in Egypt, was the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, that the focus of government and the so-called the regime craft was focused on basically the typical traditional uh, 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 dissent, which comes mainly from the Islamists and, of course, a, some, a, minor, a, a minority of liberals and uh, leftists and nationalists and secularists. Again, in Syria, I don't need to tell you about what happened in Syria in terms of it all started in Dara 
and how this particular agrarian uh, 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 I mean, uh, aspect really has played a critical part in the uprising uh, in Syria. Um, I don't want to go into also talk about not just the, uh, in terms of the agrarian roots of the uprising. I don't have the time to talk about the so-called the poverty belts in the urban areas uh, and, and tell you what kind of poverty belts exist in Egypt and other, and other countries. But it's this convergence between the agrarian uh, aspect and the urban poor that, in our opinion, in our estimate, really uh, played a key role in bringing about the multitudes that brought about the uh, exit, the forced exit of uh, Mubarak um, and uh, Ben Ali, uh, even in Yemen, for that matter, given the uh, agrarian uh, challenges, dismal conditions in Yemen itself. Uh, the point to highlight is that, uh, that the plight of the urban ruler uh, poor and the unemployed was a critical cause of the uprising and will most likely be a constant factor in contentious Arab politics for many years to come, uh, as the cases of Tunisia and Egypt and Yemen uh, clearly show. And I think post-authoritarian governments will come and go, depending on their ability, I would argue, to provide uh, employment, hope, and a measure of fairness and justice. Uh, if in particular they can never uh, overlook uh, and dismiss the socioeconomic conditions that exist in the societies. And I think Mohammed Mursi has discovered to his great discomfort that basically um, uh, it's okay to promise al-Nahda and renaissance, but at the end of the day he has to provide Aish and he has to provide a measure of hope uh, and justice. How much time do I have? Five minutes. Okay, I'll, I'll try to uh, conclude. Uh, the big point I want to say is that um, I don't think uh, uh, we should be surprised uh, to witness the aftershocks uh, and the social and political struggles that are taking place in almost every single country. Given, given the gravity, the gravity of the socioeconomic crisis that exists, given the fact that the political groups, the, the major political groups, are in the process of trying to discover each other, and also given the process of the fact that the institutional, institutionalization uh, is uh, uh, proceeding uh, much slower than many of the uh, young men and women uh, had hoped. Uh, and I think, and, and this is in the same way, my, my, and I hope you challenge what I am going to say, in the same way that many of us overestimated the durability of authoritarian regimes, and many of us did, I think we should not, uh, in this particular sense, uh, fall into the same trap. We should not fall into the same trap by underestimating the spirit of resistance unleashed by the uh, revolts in the Arab world. Because, and this is what you hear today, it's the same trap that many political scientists and historians basically thought that the authoritarian order was durable, Again, some of us now seem to be falling into a similar trap. It's the end of the Arab revolts. The Arabs are incapable of democratization, of democratizing. It's basically uh, they will most likely inherit uh, dust. I think the new waves of protest and the collective action testify, in my, to my mind, to the inability of Islamist government, Islamist parties, to enforce their ex exclusive vision on society. If, we, if I take one lesson 
of what's happening in Egypt and Tunisia is the fact the Islamist parties have failed, will fail, to impose their exclusive vision on societies. I think what we're talking about here, I don't know what's going to happen. We're talking about dynamic situations, very difficult to predict uh, the outcome, uh, because we don't know the unfolding struggles are very, very dynamic. Of course, we know certain things. We know that the Islamists uh, uh, have a very potent political machine. We know that the Islamists have mastered the art of local politics. We know that the Islamists have succeeded in co-opting a major component of the middle classes and the poor. Of course, they promise heaven and they promise also earthly goods. We also know that the Islamists have managed to build alliances with the military. Uh, we also know that the Islamists have accepted the rules of the game in terms of, I call them the new capitalists. They accept the new rules of the political, I mean, the, the international economic order in terms of uh, uh, the World Bank and IMF. Um, and they also sell the notion that Islam is good for business. As one of my colleagues said, they believe in al-Mu'mina, the, the past capitalism. That's, that's, uh, 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 and we also know that the secular leftist nationalist forces are fragmented. They're splintered. They're not institutionalized. They have failed to provide an alternative uh, vision to what the Islamists... Uh, uh, and that's why I think, uh, I mean, at this particular point, the Islamists have the upper hand that if we have learned some lessons from other areas in the world, probably Islamist victory will most likely prove to be short-lived, given the fact that this is an unfold, given the fact they have to deliver, because you can promise heaven as much as you want. By the end of the three months and three years, if you don't provide the good and the services and the employment and the hope, they'll find basically they will be uh, voted out in the same way they are voted in. Nevertheless, and that's my final point, I would argue, uh, despite, I mean, of course, we cannot predict what's going to happen. No one is saying can. I would argue that a rapture, a rapture has taken place and there is no return to the old ways of politics in the Arab world. Popular mobilization and hegemonic contestation will be the order of the day. Uh, uh, and of course will affect the practice and conduct of politics for many years to come. And one of the lessons that we have witnessed in, in Tunis and in Egypt is this uh, hegemonic contestation, collective action, street politics really have become, I mean, a, a, a permanent, a persistent tendency uh, in the region. And this revolutionary moment, regardless of what the outcome is, my take on it as a student, as a researcher on the Arab world, is that this revolutionary moment uh, uh, has turned the wheels, the wheels of history, I hope, in a very, very progressive fashion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fawaz. So I now invite Charles Chip to respond. Thank you very much, uh, Christian. Thank you very much for words as well. And I, my apologies to the um, audience. It's always very tiresome when the person who responds tends to agree with the uh, person who's just spoken. So I'm afraid I'm not going to stage an Al Jazeera walkout uh, of a confrontation here or force for words to, to, to go out of the room because clearly uh, I don't want my chapter pulled from the book either. So uh, there's a, a sense in which... Uh, it's in my interest to agree. But I really do agree, I think, with everything that, uh, that Fawaz said. And I think that 
the emphasis that he placed upon the kinds of things that we as social and political scientists should be focusing on, uh, I think were very important indeed. Uh, I, I think that, uh, first of all, I think for us it's very right to start with the notion of the drivers, as it were, of uh, the upheaval. And um, I think Fawaz himself uh, underestimates the degree to which he has also been somebody who has traced, if you like, the long and contentious here, uh, history of contention itself within the Middle East. And anyone who looked at uh, the Middle East before 2011 and thought that everything was just fine and there was no problem and that the regimes were authoritarian and there to stay... Uh, had a very peculiar view. In fact, they probably worked for the IMF because that's what they, <laughs> they tended to uh, put their seal of approval on. But uh, anyone who had watched Middle Eastern politics in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, quite apart from the wars and so on, looked at very similar kinds of events than what we saw in 2011. What was surprising in 2011 is how much it came together in certain places and came from one place to another. Whereas if you look at the 1980s, you look at Casablanca, you look at Tunis, uh, uh, you look at the riots in Yemen, you look at uh, Bahrain in the 90s, you look at uh, um, a whole host of upheavals, and then for very similar reasons, both for material reasons and for reasons of which one says is uh, a rather nice-sounding term, dignity and respect, but what that means, of course, is the contempt and the cruelty of those who ruled over them. Uh, for the decades before. So I think that that's extraordinarily important. I think it's very important to, to emphasize that. Um, these were not resilient authoritarian regimes. These were hollow authoritarian regimes. They had lost authority, and all they had was fear. And hence the power of the slogan, uh, which uh, uh, Foas talked about other slogans. One of the powers of the slogan was, of course, the powerful slogans was, you know, for, um, uh, there is no fear from today, there is no fear. Because effectively, the relationship had become a mechanical one. A mechanical one between those who could coerce their subjects into conformity uh, and those who once had believed that the subjects would conform uh, of their own free will. So I think again, uh, and I would again reinforce what Fouad said in that sense, what we look at is uh, a revolutionary moment, a moment of extraordinary power uh, in, uh, in the Middle East, which again... Uh, tiresomely to agree with uh, for us, this is not unique to the Middle East. This is something one has seen in history and politics uh, in many other parts of the world. Uh, the moment effectively when what I would regard as the re-emergence of the public takes place on the stage uh, of uh, politics. And it happened in this country, it happened in European countries at different stages in their history. Uh, the way in which, in other words, common experience of oppression, uh, deprivation, uh, um, uh, maltreatment, mistreatment of one form or another forms a solidarity of the public. However diverse people are, whatever uh, uh, groups they come from, whatever classes they come from, there comes a moment when that notion of uh, a, a common solidarity of the public becomes powerful. And I think one of the things one saw in, uh, in the Middle Eastern cities over the last uh, two years uh, both uh, in terms of the cities, but as Fawaz rightly said, in terms of their hinterland as well, was how these various streams came together to create the public and to recapture public space. These were battles for public space, and these were, in a sense, one of the things that made the uh, 
sites of Alexandria, of Suez, of Damascus, of, uh, of Dara even, of Tunis and Cairo, so powerful. Uh, these were effectively uh, people coming together to form once again a mobilized public to reclaim uh, what was rightfully there. So effectively, uh, what one saw was the attempt of people to hold power to account uh, and therefore exactly to reverse the relationship that had existed up to that point. Up to that point, it was the public or the people who had to answer to power. Now it was power that had to answer to the people in one form or another. One saw that, therefore, in the battles for public space, the performance uh, of an activist public, uh, and uh, in many senses, the power of nonviolence. Not nonviolence as a romantic or a sentimental uh, uh, notion, but nonviolence as a strategy to paralyze uh, regimes that could only deal with violence. And in some senses, that explains much of what the Syrian regime did in Syria, because uh, for them, it was an idiom far easier to understand if you forced people into violent opposition than if you had to confront nonviolence. So hence, the horrendous ferocity with which they dealt with the early demonstrations and peaceful demonstrations of Syrians, because for them, uh, violence was the easier idiom to understand and the easier idiom uh, to deal with in one form or another. So it was, I again agree with Fawaz very much, that it was an, and has been uh, an extraordinary moment, but not a moment, again, uh, that just lasts for a year, six months, or something. A moment that uh, one thinks of in historical terms uh, that potentially reverses the top-down flow of command and accountability. And if that is really something that comes out of this uh, series of events, that is a momentous change uh, in the Middle East, as it's been in other places as well. Um, the question is, and I think, again, for us... Uh, picked out many aspects of that, uh, and I suppose that's what I want to think about uh, for the rest of my uh, few minutes here, is really to think, can that moment be built upon? In other words, can that be incorporated into a radically different principle of power uh, across the region, a different kind of political order? And clearly, there are immense challenges, as one knows, from uh, the transition, as it were, from an insurgent public uh, into a mobilized public. Uh, in diverse institutions of the state. And there are three areas, I think, which uh, one needs to think about in thinking about uh, the point that um, Fawaz made about potential outcomes. Um, and again, I would get away from this binary notions that he talked about. It's either this or either that. But certainly there are three areas which are, if you look at the politics of Cairo or of Egypt at the moment or of Tunisia uh, or of Libya or many of the other places that have undergone the uprisings uh, of these last two years, you can see these uh, are exactly uh, the areas of greatest challenge. The first is really this question of, can you go from performing the public, which was such a powerful force in 2011, 2012, to institutionalizing it? Can you, in a sense, recapture, and not recapture, but rechannel and build upon that power of public mobilization, not in the streets only, not in the squares only, but actually in the institutions of the state? Can you recapture those institutions and make them truly public institutions as they once claimed uh, to be? So can effectively the occupation of public space be turned into the meaningful systematic occupation uh, of public institutions? And as we know, uh, and I imagine most people who are studying politics here are very well aware of the fact that institutions are labyrinthine in themselves. They are opaque. Uh, they inspire mistrust, whoever's in charge of them. 
because, of course, nobody can quite see what's happening within it. And clearly, the institutions across the Middle East have been so abused for the last 30 or 40 years in the name of the people uh, that people are very wary of the institutions' uh, behavior and those who go into them. So clearly, again, as has been demonstrated in Tunisia and in uh, Egypt, elections are clearly uh, necessary to assert the control of the public over the institutions, but again, uh, not sufficient, because the fear is that uh, power will remain symbolic Uh, while the public is excluded in some form or other. The deep suspicion of power has clearly been manifest in uh, the last six months uh, in uh, Egypt, quite rightly so in some ways, uh, but certainly a notion that uh, once it has become institutionalized, the very impetus of the uh, uprisings will be lost. And to some extent, there's a warning from Lebanon uh, here in Uh, Famously, in 2005, after the assassination of of ex-Prime Minister Hariri, uh, there were those massive demonstrations and a very moving one from all the testimony of uh, the young Lebanese who gathered in the Place des Martyrs, uh, the huge central space uh, in Beirut, um, saying that uh, they met Lebanese in that encampment of hundreds of thousands that they'd never met before. They're people from different walks of life, from different communities, realizing that they had not simply something in common in a sort of notion of sentimental Lebanese nationalism, but something in common as a mobilized citizenry. And that was something that they began to feel their power in. And then, then, uh, as some of them I talked to uh, afterwards rather wryly said, uh, the trouble is we were too successful. Uh, The government collapsed, the, the prime minister resigned, new elections were called and everyone had to leave the Place des Martyrs to go off and vote uh, in their own constituencies. And then they got gobbled up by the machine again. So, in other words, the translation of that moment of extraordinary power uh, in Lebanon in 2005 led to the institutionalization of it in a way that was directly uh, uh, subversive of the solidarities that had been created uh, in the Place des Martyrs, and the regret and the feeling that it was, in, in many ways, despite producing uh, an electoral outcome, an electoral outcome that favoured the old institutions of the Lebanese state. So there's clearly that, I think, is one of the greatest uh, challenges. The second one is the notion of the fragmentation of the public, that in a sense, one of the notions of the public itself is that it is a diverse body, a plural, uh, plural body. And the, the delicate balance is how do you balance between, as it were, the diversity of the citizens, citizenry and the fragmentation of the idea of the public. And clearly, they have two very different kinds of implications. Fragmentation of the idea of the public means there is no public, that they are instead divided between different communities, sects, uh, regions, classes, or whatever. Whereas, of course, the plurality of the citizenry means that you're looking to create a system in which uh, there are uh, possibilities to be a different kind of Egyptian, a different kind of Syrian, a different kind of Libyan, but all within uh, a notion of uh, the Libyan or the Egyptian or the Syrian public itself. And here again, one of the things that one hears is the notion that uh, you have to struggle against uh, the calls for unity in the name of national security, in the name of Islam, in the name of the people, ironically. Uh, And so again, that notion, is this being used actually to exclude the diversity of certain members of that community on grounds of gender, on grounds of sect, on grounds of ethnicity, on grounds of class? 
And so, again, this is something that you can see in the debate in Tunisia. You see it in the debate in, uh, in Egypt at the moment, uh, that clearly there are those who want to exclude significant sections of the public. And how do you prevent that from happening? How do you ensure that that doesn't happen? And clearly, uh, again, that's something of concern. And finally, uh, there's the uh, question of the degree to which the continued performance of the public reinforces uh, the elements of what I call the shadow state, what have often been called the filul, the remnants uh, of the regime, which seem often to underplay their degree of power. The notion that there are uh, people there waiting for the opportunity to exploit the divisions uh, amongst them. The uncertainty uh, when violence is used in particular about what has actually been at the root of the violence itself. So when you see, for instance, the assassination of someone like uh, Shukri Baid in Tunisia uh, uh, about two weeks ago, um, a secularist, a leftist, a lawyer, uh, the immediate uh, finger of blame was pointed against the Islamists, uh, against al-Nahda in particular, uh, but also against others who disliked his opposition and open opposition to the government, disliked his secularism, uh, disliked his socialism. But of course, as people have often said, one of the great uh, uh, uncertainties is whether that was really the case or whether that was indeed an assassination carried out by people still within the shadow state itself who would rather see division amongst the public, see the fragmentation of the public. So once you introduce violence of that kind and you get one million people mobilizing uh, for the funeral of Belaid, and then you get 200,000 people mobilizing to restore the, uh, the um, uh, reputation of Anahta a few days later, you can see it works to the satisfaction of those who want to fragment the public, to demonstrate to people they don't have as much in common as they thought. So, again, uh, there's the notion of the habits of power uh, of the coercive state which are clearly something that do need to be combated. And that's where I go back to uh, what Fouaz said. This is not a moment in uh, a, a short span of time. This is a continuing revolutionary process. And clearly one of the greatest challenges over the next uh, uh, 10 years or so is to ensure, as I said, that those extraordinarily powerful moments of 2011, 2012, where a public manifest itself, reclaim public space, becomes actually translated into public institutions that hold those even in the shadows of power uh, to account. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have about half an hour for questions. There are stewards in the hall with microphones. We'll take questions in groups of three. Uh, if you're called, please introduce yourself and state your affiliation before you ask your question and try to keep the questions short. Please, any questions? There's a question over there, at the back. At the back, and then the second one in front. Thank you so much. Uh, that was a very stimulating talk. I'm Harry Verhoeven, a postdoc at, at Oxford at the Department of Politics and IR. Um, you rightly mentioned that a lot of the events you've been discussing tonight are not unique in, in global history. And a lot of the dynamics you, you, you've studied are, are, share a lot of similarities with other places. But I was wondering, uh, up to what extent do you think uh, that a global conscience uh, played a role uh, in, these, in these uprisings, in these dynamics? Up to what extent do you, for example, find that diaspora connections uh, were a major driver? 
up to what extent do the experiences of the color revolutions in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe influence or not, which would be an interesting finding too, uh, the very dynamics you're describing. So I, I'd like you to say a bit more about what exactly the global uh, connection is. And, and, and finally, um, I, I found it absolutely refreshing to have a talk on the Middle East without even once someone mentioning Israel or Palestine. <laughs> and I was wondering why that was. Thank you. Um. Professor Kamal Majid, University of Cardiff. Um, how, Dr. Fawaz mentioned the subjective conditions in Egypt or in, in, the, in the whole area as poverty and unemployment, but forgot the objective condition of the American oppression. America has converted the Egyptian army to a mercenary to subjugate the Egyptian people to the rule of Mubarak. And the people really revolted not just against the poverty, but also against the American oppression. If it is only the poverty which caused it, then it's bound to fail because the, the upheaval itself made the economic conditions even worse. In fact, in Syria, the whole thing failed because now America, as well as Russia, and as well as the opposition, are now looking for a negotiated settlement, and therefore the problem has not been solved at all. Thank you. Uh, hello, Conor um, I would like to know if you agree with um, the view, um, Professor Fawaz Gerges, the first to talk. Uh, you presented uh, the, the Arab revolts in the Middle East. As, uh, as, a, as a succession with, uh, after the Latin Americas and uh, Eastern Europe. And I would like to know if you agree with the Fukuyama view of uh, the end of history, meaning that uh, there would be global liberal democracies in the world, or if you had a different point of view. Thanks. Please, the global conscious. <laughs> I think on, on the first question, the global consciousness, well, I mean, I think that when you look at the ways in which the repertoire of protest made sense to people in the Middle East, um, there may be an element of awareness of what was happening elsewhere, but it seems to be much more the point I made at the beginning, that it, there was an embodied memory of the repertoire they drew upon from their own experiences. Uh, although the generations were different, uh, you think of a whole generation of Tunisian youth who came out in the 1980s, who demonstrated, who more were killed then than were in 2011. And so that, in a sense, was powerful. Uh, you could say the same in, in uh, Egypt to some degree. So I think that those were probably, my feeling is, those had a much more powerful um, idiom, if you like. It was a much more powerful idiom than, say, what was happening elsewhere. However, what was happening elsewhere could be said to have been a symptom of very similar things that were happening in Egypt and in other parts of the Middle East. I don't think it's a kind of coming together of the causes rather than necessarily people imitating the forms. Uh, I think when you start looking at how did Egyptians see Tunisia, that was clearly far more powerful than, say, how did uh, Tunisians ever think about Ukraine or any other place. So I think there was an element there, but it, it, I don't think that was, that was the key. I think the more important was, in a sense, the, uh, the memory of what was happening within their own societies and, therefore, in a sense, why it was meaningful. If you, saw, uh, if you were a Syrian and you saw Egypt erupting, you would uh, demonstrate as well. Uh. 
Well, uh, yes, the Arab revolts uh, were not unique. Uh, are not the, the, the Arab revolts, uprisings were not unique, are not unique. But I think if there, is, if, if there was any particular unique feature of the Arab uprisings of 2011 and 2012 is the focus on what I call the internal tormentors as opposed to uh, the obsession with the West. I mean, one of the most probably uh, uh, complex questions in Arab politics in the last probably 150 years uh, is that basically the Arab world looks itself vis-a-vis the West. The West has, has always been or was uh, a kind of a measure by which the Arab world, Arab intellectuals, activists, basically tried to construct a set of uh, solutions and, and to their problems. I think what's unique about 2011 and 2012 was the focus on the internal dimension uh, as opposed to foreign policies and international relations. I think many of the activists, and I'm sorry to disappoint you, uh, uh, realized that uh, basically the villains were the internal tormentors that uh, promised heaven over the last 50 years and delivered dust. Um, I didn't read the rallying cries of the millions of Arabs about al-Aish and al-Hurriya as really an attack on American foreign policy, even though, as you rightly said, that many Arabs viewed, uh, view American foreign policy as viewed American foreign policy as sustaining the oppressive autocratic order that exists in the region. But I think uh, my reading, and I could be wrong, is that the internal dimension was much more important than the external dimension and foreign policy, even though no one can really, uh, uh, I mean, underestimate uh, uh, the relationship between the United States and the Egyptian army, and also the the American role in basically... uh, uh, convincing the uh, uh, military, in particular in Egypt, to nudge Mubarak uh, and not to fire on the people. In fact, uh, one can make the argument that the American role in this particular case was very positive, even though it served its own interest by maintaining uh, the security and military apparatus in Egypt. Uh, Well, the end of history, uh, in many ways, uh, I mean, you can look at the Arab uprising of 2011-2012 as the third Arab revolt against the neoliberal order that was constructed and consolidated in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 and the the idea of the end of history. and and, uh, So in a way, it's not really on the contrary. I think uh, that the whole uh, idea of the neoliberal, the obsession with the neoliberal policies that became really more of a science mm. in the West. Uh, I mean, this was really the, the revolt that basically was uh, designed to, uh, uh, I mean, have a different vision, a vision based on the whole idea, I mean, of al-adala, uh, justice itself. And I think uh, uh, what, what, when you see today the waves, the multiple waves of protest, in particular by the nationalist and the liberal-leaning and leftist uh, group, is the whole idea about distributive justice. That is, the Islamists, whether in Tunis or Morocco or even in Egypt, basically accept the system as it is, accept the idea, the whole idea of the uh, of neoliberal economic policies. 
And what you're seeing on the streets is basically a different uh, demand. A different demand is a demand for a more just uh, system. No. So it's far from the end of history. In fact, the revolt themselves tell us a great deal about the bankruptcy, the entire, the so-called narrative that gained momentum in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of the United States as the dominant power in the international system. More questions in the back. Yusuf Sharif, King's College, London. Uh, you spoke about the uh, ongoing revolutionary momentum, and I wonder if uh, you touched on the counter-revolutionary m- momentum, meaning uh, the reaction, the, survival, the fight for survival by the kingdoms that are now still uh, alive in the Arab world. And then there are two ladies here, and then in front as well. Thank you. Um, Rabia and... Um, an Algerian and a teacher in, the, in London. Um, I just wanted to um, hear your views on why what is happening in Syria, um, what is happening in Egypt and Tunisia hasn't happened in Saudi Arabia and hasn't happened in Morocco. I am very much interested in the two monarchies, so if it's possible, if you could say why. Especially that uh, I don't think that the reasons that um, the revolutions are not happening in the countries that I mentioned now. Um, um, We we all know that lately Saudi Arabia has allowed, the Saudi government has allowed certain things. I mean, I found it even um, funny, actually, not funny, haha, but funny, strange that the Saudi government has allowed women in uh, politics lately. And um, uh, um, that Morocco is also... um, allowing certain things and, you know, without saying them. So why is it not happening in, in the two countries? Please. Front of you. The speakers agree that there's a, a big ecological crisis in the Middle East, I mean, to do with global capitalism, which you criticize, sort of overuse of fossil fuels and water resources and so on. Um, and the monoculture and export-led economies. So you talked of completing the Arab Revolution in terms of economic and social issues, but do you also think that in order to carry it through and complete it successfully, you have to tackle that ecological crisis? And I, I would say in terms of you know, a switch of the economy to renewables and conservation, solar power, is very possible in, in those countries. Yeah, I think the, the point about counter-revolution is very well taken. I think that um, there is a danger that uprisings and revolutions do get romanticized, and therefore people do not take account of Uh, as I was mentioning before, as it were, those who have not yet been dislodged and those who are working to return. And clearly, in uh, both in countries in where there have been widespread uprisings, there is um, considerable and justifiable fear that people are working for counter-revolutionary purposes. I mean, uh, uh, deep suspicions in Yemen, deep suspicions in Egypt and in Tunisia and elsewhere. Uh, And I suppose in some places there's the notion that the the balance of power has shifted so that these figures will find it harder uh, to to, uh, mobilize. But more subversively, I think this is one of the things that people mentioned about in relation to Egypt, um, where 
people talk about the unreconstructed nature of the security state, that people have focused very much on the army, but actually much less on the Amn, on the Mohabarat, on the security services. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons for that is often said is that when you become president of Egypt, whether you've come from the Muslim Brotherhood or whatever, you find it's very convenient to have the um at your disposal. You find it very convenient, not because you like pulling out people's fingernails, but because they're the ones who have the files on the newer party, on the Salafis, the people who are giving you a really hard time. So, in a sense, you use them. So, the seduction of, as it were, the security state is there. And I think this is one of the things that people are going to try and worry about. It's not, in other words, a concerted counter-revolution, but as I said, the habits of coercive power, uh, of surveillance power, uh, are very much there. And those are going to be harder to break, clearly. And in some places, as you said, um, there are people, I mean, Bahrain's the obvious one, counter-revolution, call them across the causeway and, and, uh, uh, and try and smash the rebellion. But the rebellion doesn't get smashed. I mean, that's the point. The counter-revolution has a real problem on its hands, as indeed you could argue uh, the Syrian regime uh, and the terrible uh, killings in Syria are witness to. That counter-revolution has to depend upon these twin notions of intimidation and co-optation. And in some places that might work well, in others clearly not. So I, th I think it's a very good point to make because it does precisely go to the, go to the heart of what uh, Fouad said, which is this is a long moment in history. This is not something that happens and then it's gone and then it's fine. Uh, and I think there is a danger that as attention shifts from these places, uh, then the notion is, well, it's happened there, what's the problem? And I suppose that may go to the heart of what you were saying also about Saudi Arabia and Morocco. These are not countries that I've worked on or in myself in, in any great detail, but clearly one of the things one has to be a bit wary of, and that's why one's wary of terms like the Arab Spring, is that not every Arab country is the same. Just because they're inhabited by people who speak Arabic, they don't have the same social structures. They don't. And yet... And many of the things that led to the uprisings were things that people in Arabic-speaking countries had in common with people in other countries, Latin America, Southern Europe, and so on. Clearly, one of the things that's very, that, that revolution brings out, or potential revolution brings out, is that some regimes are more skilled than others. Some... Uh, uh, and this is often a, a theory put forward, that actually governments lose revolutions, revolutionaries don't make them. And it's not to say that the king of Morocco or the king of Saudi Arabia are particularly skilled or astute. They make stupid mistakes as well. But they're dealing with a somewhat different structure. So clearly many of the underlying causes that Fawaz talked about are, are, are certainly evident in Morocco. And Morocco's had its share in the 1980s uh, of, of serious upheaval. But I think that one of the things one might say is that is it preemptive action by the, uh, by, the, by the initiative from the top that has prevented it, or is it actually because of the way in which Moroccan politics has been reconfigured? And I think if you looked at Moroccan politics and you looked at Saudi politics, you couldn't say they're the same thing at all. They're very different kinds of societies, very different dynamics. So I think that you, it's a good question, and one has to think, what is the revolutionary potential? And I, my own feeling, apart from if you looked at, say, uh, the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, there's very little sense of the same notion of the public space of, as it were, public space used as it might be in uh, Cairo or Tunis. Uh, in some of the cities of, Saudi, of the eastern province, you get a very similar sense of that, a sense of common beleaguerment uh, and, and protest. And so in a sense, when you look at the protests of the eastern province, they look quite similar 
to those and the forms of suppression have been quite similar to those seen in other parts of the Middle East. But I think that the, the structure of the kingdom uh, is, is differently organized. Uh, on the ecological thing, I would, I would turn to Fawaz to, um, uh, to, to take that question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just let me add a note about uh, Saudi Arabia. And, uh, I mean, I think uh, Charles talked about performing the public. I mean, what we witness in Yemen and Tunis and Egypt, the fact is, uh, I mean, you had a, the public performing the nation, uh, multiple social uh, segments coming together and performing the public, seizing, trying to seize public spaces, and also the state. I think if there is one particular point about Saudi Arabia is that you have the segmentation of the public. This has been, lies at the very heart of the Saudi official policy is that mm. you want to maintain segmentation. You can, you can protest as much as you can as long as in very segmented groups uh, uh, in various areas. But you, the public itself is not allowed to perform the nation in any capacity and you'll have a major crackdown. And I think this particular policy of segmentation has been relatively very effective. Not to mention the fact that, uh, of course, there are major differences between Saudi Arabia uh, and other countries. I mean, Saudi Arabia has spent uh, between 100 and 140 billion dollars in the last two years and a half trying to basically appeal to the public, uh, prevent the public mm. from performing the nation. So you have tremendous resources uh, on your hands. And since you're talking about, I mean, counter-revolutionary forces, uh, and in addition to what uh, Charles said about the shadow state, I think many of us believe that Saudi Arabia has emerged, not just Saudi Arabia, as the leading counter-revolutionary uh, state with tremendous resources uh, trying to basically prevent the inevitable. Uh, we know, you know very well, I mean, the role of Saudi Arabia in Bahrain in particular, um, even in Yemen, uh, initially even in Egypt. I mean, you know the history, the, the, the major, I mean, uh, clashes between the Saudi official political class and the U.S. foreign policy establishment talk about the shouting matches between King Abdullah and President Obama because the American president decided that Mubarak had to go. Uh, major, I mean, the tensions in U.S.-Saudi uh, relations as a result of the Americans basically coming to believe that Mubarak became a uh, liability. Uh, in Egypt itself, I mean, to come back to what Charles, uh, Charles uh, has said, I mean, it is, it is fascinating how little uh, Morsi and Al-Ukhwan done about the interior ministry, about the security forces. Uh, I, mean, I mean, this was one of the major demands of the protesters that you have to reform the security forces and the interior ministry. Yet, the same people, almost the same people remain uh, in the same place, and now he put in charge of the interior ministry and the police and the security forces people who are very close to uh, the Muslim Brotherhood who are basically told to crack down. And in fact, uh, Mursi was very critical of the security forces because they did not really use uh, uh, effective, uh, uh, oppressive methods in order to crack down against the protesters in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, in, in many ways, I mean, you know very well uh, who is trying to support, uh, uh, I mean, Mursi and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. This gives you an idea uh, also about the uh, uh, unholy alliance between the army and Morsi. I mean, remember the, 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 uh, I mean, uh, the rights or even whatever the military wanted now is part of, it's in the Constitution. Literally, they're given, uh, I mean, autonomy 
over their own uh, uh, little uh, uh, fiefdom in the military. And this tells you a great deal about the fact that... Uh, uh, and that's why... But at the same time, what we need to realize is that Egyptians are back on the streets. You have tremendous uh, opposition and resistance on the part, not just of, of a few thousand. You're talking about major segments. Uh, uh, you're talking about the nationalists, the leftists, the liberal-leaning civil society, revolutionary forces, major resistance. Uh, of course, we do not know the outcome of this particular struggle, but the reality is counter-revolutionary forces are also being uh, opposed by uh, leading uh, social segments uh, in society. Um, you know, I, I really don't know much about uh, the, I mean, whatever, the ecology. And, and, I mean, we know that you have your absolutely catastrophe. Uh, I mean, just, I don't need to just go to Egypt and, and, and see what kind of, I mean, hardly, because remember, when you're talking about survival, when you're talking about subsistence, when you're trying to provide uh, uh, literally subsistence to, uh, uh, I mean, 40% of the population, question of, I mean, environment, and these are questions perceived to be as luxury. They're not luxury. They go to the very heart of what kind of society you want to establish. And I'm sure uh, many of the public uh, that perform the nation also want a, a different kind of society, a different kind of environment. But I'm afraid to say that this is a very, it, it has not received um, um, any major attention or priority uh, so far. Just to pick up on what Fawaz and Charles were saying about the segmentation of public protest in Saudi Arabia and the denial of public space, one of the first actions the Saudis did when they went to Bahrain was to tear down the Pearl Roundabout, mm. that public <coughs> gathering point that mm. had become the focal point, the Tahrir Square of Bahrain, to deny that to the protesters and then to sectarianize and segment the opposition to prevent the emergence of this social movement. So we saw that in action, in this kind of leading counter-revolutionary moment, these two dynamics that you were both mm. talking about mm. very powerfully. Mm. And in terms of Saudi spending the $140 billion, the statistic that I have read is that the proportion of Saudis in the workforce has actually declined over the past two years, in spite of the billions of dollars, in spite of the huge work creation programs, the proportion has still decreased. 25% of Saudis now live in poverty, so these are the indicators that will become revolutionary in the longer run. So a revolution may take very different forms in different places, but these changes are very well underfoot. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I also really, in terms of Saudi Arabia, I mean, I, I, I really wonder whether the expectations and the grievances of young Saudis differ very much from their Egyptian and, and Tunisian counterparts. I mean, I think... Um, if we focus, I mean, on economic vulnerabilities, we might dismiss any kind mm. of diffusion in Saudi Arabia. I mean, if it's just a matter, even though, as you said, poverty is, is, is I mean, some people say it's really between 30 and 40 percent, not just 25 percent. It's very huge. But the reality is, I think, if our reading of the situation is correct, it's more than economics. That is about political citizenship, about citizens really being proud of their nation, about, I mean, we have, we have not really talked about corruption, uh, systemic corruption, uh, and uh, how the question really resonates in almost every single country. So the reality is, uh, even though that Saudi Arabia differs substantively from other nations, I think in the same way that overestimated the durability and resilience of some authoritarian regime, we should not also, that does not mean that Saudi Arabia, I mean, the fusion might uh, reach Saudi Arabia soon, but the reality is, uh, uh, Saudi is facing some major, major challenges 
um, and uh, uh, it's a matter of time, I would argue, that it has to address these challenges. Question over in the front. George Davis from Iraq. Um, Professor Georgis, uh, Professor Tripps, you are conveniently skirted around the biggest issue uh, confronting the Middle East, and that's the, the matter of Iraq. Uh, obviously, it doesn't really matter. It's just a now it's a forgotten cause. You both have started from a, a point in, in present, but you don't consider the consequence of introducing America into the Middle East. It started with the uh, uh, deposing of uh, uh, the, the Mossadegh in Iran, and ever since, and with the, with the, the invasion of, of uh, Egypt, and an invasion of Iraq, uh, we, you, you never covered the, the aspect of the damage that the America and Britain has caused to the Iraqis, to the Iraqi people, to the Iraqi structure, uh, a country where 60% of the people, on, on, based on uh, Professor Fawaz's figures, were highly educated, highly literate, and, and with, a, with, a, with a big, high uh, health and other services. You have conveniently uh, skirted around the question that client states like Morocco, like Egypt, like Jordan, like Kuwait, are all there to serve their master, the American master. Okay. You, uh, please, one second, uh, one second, please. No, no, get to the question. The comments can come after us. So yeah, the, the question, question is, how, what do you suggest? Uh, how do you propose? Uh, what do you think is going to be the outcome and the chaos that's been created in Iraq and now continuing to go on into Syria? Question up, up at the top. Um, hi, thank you very much, first of all. Uh, my name is Tamir Nasrallah. I'm an independent Arab, an independent voice. Um, I do share um, your view on um, the socioeconomic um, factors, but um, I think what uh, the gentleman downstairs failed to actually say, because he was mincing his words a bit, was that... Um, there is a role to play from the Arab powers, the, the West, and the Americans in terms of supporting various groups. Um, I'm not saying that they, are the, that, that they are responsible for the revolutions, but let's say um, I'm against Assad, which I am. Why, why are we giving arms and guns, I mean, as, as the West? I mean, Qatar is involved with the West. Qatar is a small country. You know that it's pathetic to think that Qatar um, makes weapons in its own country and actually would um, be that powerful to, to be able to sponsor uh, uh, those kind of things. That we are actually, as, as the West, we are supporting the Islamists. Um, I'm, that's my personal stance. I'm not saying if you are with the Islamists, that's fine. That's your politics. But I'm saying the West was supposedly against the Islamists. Now we're supporting them, and we are. Morsi went to Saudi Arabia without anybody by himself. Do you, do you have a question? Yes, I do have a question. Asking? Yes, my question is, what, what role do you think the West has in uh, um, actually cause, or creating counter-revolution 
uh, counter-revolutionary um, um, uh, factors in the Middle East, uh, specifically in Syria and in Libya. Thank you. There's another question. Two more questions. Keep them quick, and then one down here as well, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, Ishmael uh, Soas. Um, so I'll keep it short and to the point. Thank you. Um, my first question sort of um, is in, sort of in response to something uh, Professor Tripp mentioned about institutions and the, uh, the Arab revolts. And I, I guess the question sort of is, is when we're talking about sort of institutions being kind of poisoned or viewed as being corrupt, are we talking, is there sort of a division between, say, political institutions and social institutions or social and religious institutions? And the example is obviously during the Arab Spring, a lot of the sort of the biggest days of protest would be after Friday prayers. So uh, that's just one distinction I was interested in. And the second question more or less is when, when we look at the way that academics and sort of news agencies and the discussion of the Arab Spring in general, to what extent is that discussion in Western countries being colored by a particular perception of the interaction between Islam and politics? Thanks. And there's just one behind you as well. Uh, it is a, just a short question. Uh, well, I'm concerned about the reaction uh, of Europe, the, the European reaction to the Arab Spring. I would like to know from both uh, speakers if uh, you agree that there were many uh, mistakes made from the European side, as uh, make many uh, uh, missed opportunities, uh, many uh, wrong uh, reactions uh, taken uh, by, the, by Europe uh, through the two years, uh, and how do you think uh, Europe should have reacted uh, through this, the past two years? Thanks. That's a question mm. right at the end as well. Hi, thank you. Um, my question feels slightly um, linked to the first two and perhaps slightly redundant, but um, somewhat more future-pointing regarding intervention when there is a protest, particularly when uh, non-violent protest is met with a violent reaction, um, in that when the speakers feel it could be justified for other outside forces to intervene and where to draw the line at, at intervention and... Um, where it's justified and where, where not so in future. Two minutes each? Two minutes each. <laughs> Three minutes each. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I think uh, I know it's very easy to have uh, your lump the West, and uh, sorry, it, it, it is. I mean, again, I, this, I'm not here in the position. I'm not trying to say that uh, defend any kind of, you know, the foreign policy of the United States or Saudi Arabia. But for your information, Saudi Arabia is leading the charge, the fight against the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and in uh, Tunisia and other countries. That is, Saudi Arabia uh, is uh, basically waging a fierce uh, battles against the Muslim Brotherhood in almost every single country, even though Qatar is providing uh, uh, aid uh, and support. Uh, and this tells you a great deal that, um, just also for your information, the United States, a major debate unfolded in the United States uh, the first few weeks after the Arab uprisings, what to do, whether to engage the Islamists or not. The reality is the American foreign policy establishment came to uh, the realization you had to accept the forces, the dominant social forces that exist. Uh, this was not a decision because before the Arab uprisings, as you know, the official uh, uh, foreign policy of the United States 
was not to engage the Islamists, directly engage the Islamists. So engaging the Islamists was really a matter, I mean, what, what myself, that the United States had no choice uh, there, either to accept the realities of, of, of uh, uh, sociological realities in Arab politics uh, or basically uh, face uh, major challenges to their uh, interests. Uh, the second uh, I mean, point I, I want to make is that uh, I think when you say about Syria and arms uh, and Qatar uh, providing, the reality is, again, to come back to Syria because we have not discussed Syria. I mean, the uprising in Syria uh, started as a political uprising. The uprising in Syria was very much similar to the various uprisings in Tunisia, in Egypt, and Yemen. Uh, the reality is, and this is, it was the Bashar al-Assad regime that forced the political uprising, that forced the peaceful protesters to take arms to defend their communities and their families. Uh, this is a point you must keep in mind, regardless of who uh, supplies uh, the uh, opposition with arms, whether it's Turkey or Qatar or wealthy uh, Gulf states. Again, for your information, despite all the pleas by many voices in the United States and outside the United States, the United States has refused to supply arms to the opposition in Syria. And this tells you a great deal, just you need to have a nuanced attitude that the United States is not really, does not have a, a blanket a policy towards uh, the various uh, countries. I mean, in Egypt, uh, the Obama administration intervened and played a positive role by trying to convince the Egyptian military not to fire on the protesters because they realized the military was the power and the military, it was in a way really a coup against Mubarak by the uh, senior echelon of the military. In fact, the tragedy of the Arab uprising, to come back to your question about Europe and the United States, is that few people really realize that uh, the Middle East is not a priority on Barack Obama's uh, foreign policy agenda. Uh, Barack Obama has been trying very systematically to shift American and economic foreign policy priorities away from the uh, shifting sands of the Middle East to somewhere else, the Pacific, uh, uh, I mean, region and Asia. In fact, uh, think of how little that the United States has invested uh, in the region since 2000. I mean, his speech in May 2012, he offered Egypt a very, very, very humble sum of uh, $2 billion, one in credit and another in debts uh, reduction, that the United States, neither Europe nor the United States, has invested major political and financial capital in trying to help transitional societies that are transitioning in that part of the world, that the United States, of course, is supporting the Islamists because the Islamists have emerged as the dominant social and political forces. Uh, final point, I mean, I, uh, on Syria. Uh, the question of Syria, I mean... Uh, uh, since we, you asked earlier about Lebanon. Uh, few people know that Lebanon had its revolutionary moment in 1975, a social movement, a radical vision to transform uh, Lebanese society. That particular revolutionary moment mutated into multiple civil wars uh, between the communities and within the communities. Uh, my fear, I mean, and to come back to Syria, is that what we might be witnessing in Syria started as a political struggle um, mutated into an armed struggle. We are seeing the beginning, and I could be wrong, and, and, and is that we are seeing in Syria, Syria is descending into the beginning, I, I would not say civil war now, full-fledged civil war. Uh, and this is, raises the question about intervention. Um, how would you in, intervene in Syria? What are the mechanisms? 
providing arms to the opposition. Let's say the Obama administration now is reviewing its foreign policy towards Syria. Let's say in the next few weeks the Obama administration decides to supply arms to the opposition. Are we sure that basically providing arms to the opposition will automatically tilt the balance of power in favor of the opposition and bring about a closer end to the Assad regime? Or will we witness a more, a deeper involvement by Iran, by Iraq, and Hezbollah on the side uh, of Syria, and you have a, I mean, a real war by proxy as opposed to uh, a very minor war by proxy in Syria itself. There are many questions involved, and I think the debate that we are, I mean, uh, raging now is that uh, the moral hazard of engaging the Assad regime, the moral hazard is, we know, even if a political settlement, that will Assad basically accept to, uh, um, I mean, uh, step down. Uh, what kind of precedent uh, basically you would establish if you accept the premise of sitting down with the Assad regime? Uh, or the, the, the big question that seems to be, in particular the opposition, is war to the end, yet you have to bring about the Assad regime. And the question for many of us, what will be the costs to Syria as a nation in terms of social fabric, a society, unified state. And that's really what we're talking about, because it's not about either or. It's a very complex and very difficult. And choices you make, every choice you make, has major costs, political, moral, and uh, uh, human costs. Very briefly, I think on the point about the institutions, I think it was not, I wasn't referring to the social institutions, which in a sense are organic. I was referring much more to the political institutions of the state. So in a sense, if the public emerged as an opponent to the, um, those who control the state, what they wanted to was institutionalize that public moment into the institutions of the state. So the mistrust comes when these state institutions, which should be public, are still in the hands of people they don't trust and they don't know. So that was the, that was the main point about that. On Europe and, and, the, and the uprisings, I think that uh, one could argue that uh, there's obviously not one policy. So you have you know, the French foreign ministry offering Ben Ali tear gas and riot police to suppress the, uh, the, um, uh, the rioters. You have this wonderful wonderful moment when William Hague goes to Tunis after the fall of Ben Ali uh, to not only congratulate the Tunisian uh, um, uh, uprising, but to tell them something about how to implement democracy and institutionalization. At the very moment he was doing that, the British government was completely admired in, I don't know if you recall, two years ago, flogging off public assets, the public forestry, to private interests. So you felt, and Tunisian friends said, well, why couldn't we teach him a lesson or two about what happens when you privatize uh, and flog off the public assets? So in a sense, uh, dealing it back. So there was this sort of extraordinary patronizing idea that somehow we will teach you now about democracy, but actually they could teach him a thing or two about uh, what it is to diminish the public. On the Iraqi case, uh, uh, clearly, that's something which has been all the elements that Fawaz was talking about in the Middle East are in Iraq redoubled in the sense of unemployment, in terms of corruption, in terms of oppression, in terms of the use of violence by government, a government which is installed by the United States, supported by Iran. It's the one thing they agree about, that al-Maliki should continue in power. And if you just look how the uprisings... Uh, affected people in Iraq, you see how it gets so entangled in what has been mentioned before, a segmented politics. So you have very brave people going out into Tahrir Square in Baghdad and being attacked by men with knives and bars and iron bars. You have in the north in Mosul, where the governor of Mosul is the brother of the Speaker of Parliament whom the Prime Minister hates, 
you have a massive demonstration which is then ferried across the river by army trucks because the commander of the army in Mosul is Maliki's man, and they go and burn down the, pres- the governor's palace. So this was, in a sense, on the one hand, you have a face of popular uprising which is clearly serving the purpose of those at the head of the state, and then you have a face of popular uprising which is against those who are at the head of the state, and you can see the reactions thereafter. And again, one of the great tragedies of Iraq, clearly, is not simply the loss of life, uh, which is terrible over the last 10 years, but also that it's left a segmented society and a segmented state, which makes concerted rebellion very, very difficult. Any framework for rebellion in Iraq is clearly going to be very much part of whether you're from this group or that group or that region or this region. So again, the notion of an Iraqi public, which you could argue was certainly there uh, in the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, even in the 1960s and 70s to some degree, uh, has become something very, very fragmented and very, very dangerous. We've gone a few minutes over time. Uh, The next Middle East Centre public lecture will be on Monday the 4th of March from 6.30 to 8 in the New Theatre. Uh, Cambridge University's Dr. Hazem Kandil will be talking about revolutionaries gambling Egypt under the Muslim Brotherhood. But for now, please join me in thanking Fawaz and Charles. Thank you.